A lot of young entrepreneurs that I talk to, they think in the wrong terms. They think in terms associated to operations and performance and not to strategic relevance. I think it's incredibly important because what you want to start is a movement. The best way to find supporters is to tell a great story. Welcome to Speak Like a CEO. My name is Oliver Aust. I'm the founder and CEO of Ibio Ipso Communications and bestselling author. And I'm delighted that I have Josef Brunner today as my guest. Hello, Josef. Hello, I'm equally excited. <laughs> and uh, I know I say this a lot, but I, I really am excited. And, and I'm always excited about my guests. This has been in the making for a long time. And you are an incredible business person and human being. Two nine-figure exits, four exits in total, starting as an entrepreneur at the age of 16, dropping out of school. So it's an incredible story. And what I love to dig in today, of course, is your story, who you are and the businesses you build, but also how do you communicate when you're building companies of that scale and impact? And how do you communicate as a leader when so many things are happening at the same time and you're building companies at light speed? So why did you become an entrepreneur? Pain. In one word, <laughs> uh, I thought about this a lot. Uh, as you know, I wrote a book about it, you know, follow the pain. And the, the book actually started when our government decided that it's too dangerous for me to hike on weekends because of Corona. Um, I thought, what else should I do? Um, and I love sports and sports for me was always almost like medication. Then I thought, you know, why don't I just write down my story, try to find a way to actually scale mentoring. Right? So because I love to mentor, I love to talk to people and change their life. So that's certainly one thing that drives me, impacting the life of the people that I meet uh, and ideally impacting their life positively. So I thought uh, that mentoring was something that I would always enjoy, but I would like to find a way that, it, that I can actually scale mentoring. So um, I you know, got into some kind of a uh, on a journey with me, myself and I um, to write the book and, you know, the you know, the nucleus of the question for me was actually, why am I doing this? Um, why don't I stop? Uh, and I think one one part of it is that's why the book is called Follow the Pain. Certainly my my inner demons, uh, because my parents uh, had a bakery and um, the bakery went chapter 11. And as we lived in the uh, bakery, uh, we actually not only lost the business, um, but we also lost the, you know, the place where we lived, our home. And it was very impactful. And it was 16. I actually wanted to uh, study quantum physics, um, but then decided that I take the entrepreneurial route and uh, become an entrepreneur. Um, and uh, at the age of 18, so I started with 16. And at the age of 18, I could buy my parents a new house, which is still the most emotional you know, benefit I got from my entrepreneurial journey. So that uh, I think these are two important elements of why I became an entrepreneur. And then obviously I like to, you know, prove naysayer wrong, um, try to do things that haven't been done before. And I like to challenge myself, but the first two are more important. Yeah. Amazing. And, uh, what, what kind of business was your first business? The first two were actually it security businesses, uh, which was great for me because it security back then didn't exist. So even for somebody as incapable as me, uh, I was actually able to be successful because there was no competition whatsoever. Right. I always loved to code. Um, I learned to cope myself, just continued my hobby, essentially. Right. And so these were the first two companies. Then the third one was an energy management company. And the fourth one was a, a Internet of Things company. 
Yeah. And the energy managing company, that was the one I think Cisco bought for a hundred plus million uh, a while ago. And yes. uh, obviously very sizable business. So, and the fourth one, uh, sold to Munich Re, what was that called? And, and what was that about? Can you give us a bit more context? Because obviously it's quite uh, astonishing that a company of that size um, is built so quickly and then acquired by Munich Re, which you wouldn't think of necessarily as the first company to buy such a company. So Yeah, it was a... Uh technology company that so the company's name was uh, Relayer Berlin based what we did is we we the company is still um, live active and you know hitting it hard uh, it's still independent uh, which I really really like uh, so it's part of the Munich Re group but it's an independent company a wholly owned subsidiary of Munich Re uh, what the company does it's, is uh, providing a technology platform that um, mid-sized manufacturing customers can use to offer their products as services. So if you have a laser printing machine, then you can offer printing as a service. If you have a tools manufacturing machine, you can offer, you know, tooling as a service. So essentially allowing, you know, customers to transform their business models from CapEx to OpEx. That's what the company did. And this is why it made such great sense for me to agree to acquire it because as part of the transformation, you also need uh, a lot of working capital. Uh, that needs to be deployed because you don't sell your machines anymore. You sell, you know, the services. Uh, and as uh, Munigree is also a very large investor, you know, this uh, made sense uh, to have a technology-enabled new business model. Hmm. It seems to me that in all your businesses, maybe there's one thing in common, and correct me if you see this differently, but the timing seems to be excellent. So you seem to be uh, detecting the big mega trends that are happening, whether that's the emergence of the internet or the beginning of uh, the Internet of Things, Web 4.0, the, the digitalization of industries, so these big trends, um, which, you know, some people certainly see, but then also identify specific business models that could help the transformation or benefit from the transformation. Is that, is that a fair assessment? I think partially uh, it is a fair assessment. Obviously, there's always a lot of luck involved, right? Uh, and while I, you know, first, firstly, greatly appreciate everything you just said, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily use the word trend uh, because I try to run away from trends as quickly as I possibly can. That's why you don't see me involved in any of the crypto things. Um, but uh, what I like to see is uh, market transformation. You know, I'm, I'm trying to actually John Chambers, former CEO of Cisco. And I had a few discussions on it. And one of the things that he taught me, which was very impactful for me, was that, uh, you know, I should try to forecast how, you know, specific changes in a market environment, be it monetary policies, government policies, change of consumer behavior, technology, how these different influences, so to speak, change a market and how a market looks after the transformation and then try to build a company that brings a product to market at the right time when the market transformation is advanced enough that um, you actually can deploy your product very successfully. And by doing so, um, you are, you know, certainly not too late to the party. You might sometimes, you know, you might be a little bit early, but you're certainly, you know, you can certainly position yourself as a thought leader in that market drive that market and then you know coming back to the very topic of our discussion which is communication you can set the tone you can choose the words you can use the terms and then at some point at least that was always my goal is you basically you know when people think about a specific problem challenge or something they look for um, they think of you because of you are you know the thought leader in that market mm -hmm. 
obviously we're going to dive deeper into thought leadership and, and the words you, you just just mentioned um before that i wanted to just um find out a little more about trends versus transformations um it's very interesting what you said you run away from trends but you walk towards transformation how do you know which is which when you're in the middle of it I certainly know only very little about most things, right? So my first filter that I apply is I only do things I understand, right? Which, you know, cuts me off of 99% of all of the opportunity out there because most of the things I don't understand. But the things I understand, um, I try to actually predict what you could then later call a trend, right? So a um, few examples. When you live in the world we are living in now, you see there's a great push towards renewable energy and um, e-mobility, and there's a lot of electrification going on in general. And um, while I understand and support the transformation, I try to understand the implications that come with that transformation. So on the supply side, where we you know produce energy, you have a lot of volatility. On the demand side, you have, you know, heat pumps that we, you know, really push into the markets. You have e-mobility that we push into the market. You have crypto that we push into the market. You have more and more centralized um, IT infrastructure and technology, such as cloud services, that consume uh, enormous amounts of energy. So that leaves you with fragility, if you will, on the supply side and continues uh, hunger, if you will, on the demand side. And the big problem is how to get the energy to the places where you need the energy at the right time. So one trend, so to speak, will be grid management, demand response, load management in general, right? You don't have to have a PhD to understand this, right? So that is that is uh, one example. The other one, you know, on the food side, you know, might be, an understanding that with the whole push towards plant-based uh, products uh, and uh, that combined with the fragility of supply chain globally, uh, the increased appetite uh, to stay in that context uh, verbally of you know, emerging countries to eat more and to eat healthier will you know, force us to produce more locally and to actually be more vertically integrated and to have almost like a farm-to-fork approach where you as a brand that you know, sells into a consumer market own or at least control the entire supply chain. So away from asset light business models, so to speak. So these are two hopefully understandable examples. Yeah, and these are these are the big, uh, not trends, but transformations you see. And I would agree with those. Happy to be two things I know a little about as well. And I love your investment advice. just don't invest in things you, or, or don't try to build companies in areas you don't really understand because usually the upside will be captured by people who do understand the sector. So I think that's that's very smart and, and something I think we should all take to heart. Um, now, I'd love to dive deeper into the thought leadership part you mentioned. So you said, okay, you, you identify these opportunities and then you deliberately set out to become a thought leader you want to be top of mind so people think about a certain subject let's say the servitization of uh, product-led businesses or heavy industry um, that they think of you and your businesses how do you how do you go about that do you sit down think about the messaging the positioning do you look for channels how to transport and communicate your thought leadership so how, how do you approach such a question so the way that i typically tackle 
the topic of building a company or, you know, transforming an idea into a company is that I start with the end picture. So I start painting a target picture in five years. This is who I am in five years. This is the impact that I had. So I know where I will be in five years. So the only thing I have to do is figure out how to get there. And then I can break it down. I love hiking, right? So I, uh, everything for me uh, is related to mountain pictures. So the, the mountaintop for me is a strategic, you know, target picture. You could also say your North Star, whatever it is, right? Then I have different base camps I have to reach in order to get there. And then I have the journey. I know, you know, who do I need? What kind of organization do I need? Who's the right investor for me? How does my organization, you know, look like? What is my very DNA of the company? Am I a technology company? Am I a sales company? Who am I, right? Am I a company that attracts the best talent? Am I just the most aggressive company out there? All of these characteristics can be leading to success. They can, all of them can bring you to the mountaintop, but you have to choose one and one only. You have to know your identity. So once I know that, um, I then, you know, try to become a thought leader in that market. And then I think about, you know, what's top of mind of my buying center. So um, my buying center wakes up every morning irrespective of what I'm selling to whom. And, you know, he wakes up with 10 problems. He goes to bed with 50. How do I make sure that I'm under the top three problems or that I'm a potential solution to the top three problems? And then once I have identified the challenge that he or she is dealing with on a daily basis, once I know that this is relevant, right? Relevance is extremely important because relevance is the sister of the right of commercial existence. If you're not relevant, you have no right for commercial existence. You might be nice to have a gimmick. You might be elegant, but you're not solving something of relevance. Once I know that I'm solving a, a relevant problem for um, a person that I can identify, I just need to understand the wording of that very person in the very market he or she is in. And then I'm trying to be associated to the wording in that market. So to give you a concrete example, what this means, when we started Chulex, this was 2009 during the last, 2008, 2009, during the last financial crisis. Um, and what we did is we created an energy management platform that would remotely monitor, analyze, and control the energy consumption of every IP-connected devices on the network. The transformation that we understood uh, was happening was... Uh, you know, that everything that was not running away quickly enough would get an IP address, buildings, data centers, mobile phones, and so on and so forth, printers, um, IP um, video conferencing, and so on and so forth. So we said, if they use IP, we can use IP to control them, right? We can shut them down when you don't need them. This is the time when we still have PCs in the office. So uh, we understood when PCs were being used or not used, and we would shut them down. The market that existed already back then was PC power management. We said... That market, that's a market that is already existing and it's not solving the energy crisis. Uh, so we created a new market that was called enterprise energy management, which was essentially, a, a, you know, a, a, a very elegant way of, first of all, defining a new category. But secondly, this was a very, it was very crisp, precise to the point, but it was also very exclusive. So everybody knew, okay, it's a network, it's IP, it's pretty much everything, but it was not vague, Right. And um, we just started to talk about enterprise energy management for two years. 
And then um, when Gartner came up with a new um, quadrant, we, of course, were the leader of a quadrant called Enterprise Energy Management because we essentially invented it without telling anyone that we invented it. We just started to talk about this right out of the blue. And um, as a result, you know, when, when Chulix turned two years, we had 30% of the Fortune 500 as customers. Wow. Yeah. So you create a new category and, and you own the category. You're creating the words around it. And essentially, when people, whatever people think about this emergent uh, category, they will have to think of you because you're inevitably connected to that. So I love that. And I love uh, sort of starting from the end result that five years from now, you, you're very clear where you want to be. Uh, does, does that happen five years from now in, in your experience? I mean, you probably had a few of these five-year steps or is the world just so unpredictable that you still end up in a great place, but it's just a different great place? Actually, it's both because it depends on how you, um, how you specify your target picture. A lot of young entrepreneurs that I talk to, they think in the wrong terms, they think in, you know, terms associated to operations and performance and not to strategic relevance, right? So what, you know, the target picture for Chulex was is, you know, with the customers that we engage, we would in average save 20% of the energy consumed, you know, in total, we would, you know, um, you know, have saved energy equal to this many trees, or we, you know, you could shut down this many coal plants and so on and so forth. And, That is the beauty of a target picture because you know what you want to achieve, but it gives you all the freedom on how to achieve it. And most people, you know, think in, in how they do things, right? But not in the outcome. And if you think in outcome, you have the flexibility, but still a goal you can, you know, always march towards. Yeah. That's right. A lot of people get attached to the how rather than the outcome. Yeah. And I sense that storytelling is a big factor for you. Um, you already outlined some images, mountaintops, etc. And I heard you use metaphors a lot in, in, in podcasts. So I wonder how important you think storytelling is for a leader, for a CEO. I think it's incredibly important because what you want to start is a movement, right? And uh, in the beginning, it's you yourself and... So it's me, myself, and I essentially, right? When you start a movement. Um, so you need to find supporters, right? And um, the best way to support, to find supporters is to tell a great story. And a lot of people mix up telling stories with lies. And it's actually, I, I never understood why you could even make that, you know, connection. Because what you do with telling a story is, once again, you have your target pictures, like, this is where I'm going. You want to be with me. You know, this is important. It is relevant. It's fulfilling. And this is, you know, important both internally and externally for any stakeholder. Any stakeholder that is working with you on an emotional basis is closer and more loyal to you than if it is just on a transactional basis. Right. So you want supporters. You know, you have, you know, nowadays you, you sometimes this is being called love brands which, you know, I think there's, there's some truth to it. But, you know, you know, telling the right story is so important because you get the right supporters on board, but you're also excluding the people you don't want to have with you. And that's equally important, right? So as an example, you know, some, an observation I made specifically with my tech investments is there's a lot of brilliant people out there, brilliant engineers, but some of them are prima donnas, right? And a prima donna can kill your entire company culture. So by telling the story of who we are, you know, what drives us, the values that are important to us, 
um, you know, you can tell everyone, hey, we clean up our own trash, right? We are there for one another. We never treat somebody disrespectful. And then you, you know, use examples of, you know, what you do, because it's important to not just talk, but to act. And it's ideally the best stories are being told by actions, right? Not by words. You actually have together the group of people, investors, customers, partners, employees, board members that are um, best, you know, fitted to make your journey a success. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I also think that telling stories is actually the opposite of lying because you make yourself accountable, your stories out there. And if I quote you correctly, you said something like um, the, the role of a CEO is to tell stories and make sure they become true. Is that, is that uh, do you recognize these words? Uh, I do. I do. And in order to make sure that it is becoming true, because it's a promise, right? Yeah. You, you, you promise your customer that you lead them to the promised land, right? That's what you do. Essentially, you know, take my hand, right? I'll get you there. Yeah. So you have to work your butt off in order to really, you know, deliver on your promise. Yeah. Um, so it's it's the extreme opposite of a lie. It's a journey. It's your the tagline of your right of existence, essentially, right? Yes. And that is creating so much commitment internally and externally. We don't let our customers down. There is not a you know change in the stock market that unfortunately forced us to kill that business to do this. That's bullshit. This is an excuse. You know we stand in for the promises that we made and we deliver on our promises. This is such a strong and important message that sets you apart. But you have to do what you say. Yeah, and that there are obstacles, right? So you said you are the guy. You take the hand of the the customer, the hero, always the hero, never yourself. Uh, you take them as the guide and. When you tell stories, it's also clear there will be dragons to slay, there will be upheaval, there will be obstacles, but you know the promise then will be brighter for it, and, and I love that. How, how did you learn about storytelling? Was it something that always came natural, or was it something you learned along your entrepreneurial journey where you said, okay, my, my fact-telling approach isn't working, I need to come up with something else? Um, so two moments or people that really influenced it. Uh, one was... When I got started, you know, and I did try to explain to my very first customers, which were Swiss banks, um, what IT security was, you know, I tried to come across extremely smart by throwing in terms and words I knew they wouldn't understand, right? Um, you could also say I was arrogant. Uh, but I saw, you know, they would not And it would, they would look like, you know, pretending they would understand. But I realized people don't, you know, speak up or raise their hands saying, sorry, I didn't get this. What do you mean with this? Right? Because there's pride, right? Some, some people are also shy. So I actually achieved the opposite of what I wanted to achieve, right? So in, instead of, you know, acquiring more customers, you know, uh, I had hard problems acquiring customers because, you know, I used a message that they wouldn't understand, a message that wouldn't resonate. So once I changed it and I talked in pictures, people understood immediately what was going on. And, you know, the very task was still sophisticated on a technology level. But I realized the simpler the sales messages, the more it resonates. So it was learning number one. And then learning number two was um, through a really, really important mentor of mine. Um, Tom Noonan is his name. He's on the board of the New York Stock Exchange. He's a co-owner of uh, the parent company of the New York Stock Exchange, uh, which is called 
Intercontinental Exchange, one of the fastest, 20 fastest growing companies for the last 10 years. And, you know, he did so many different businesses um, and he taught me the beauty of simplicity is that, you know, if you aren't able to really put something in simple terms, the likelihood that you don't understand it is really high. And I realized this myself when I was talking to, you know, smart young people out there. The more, you know, when it's getting complicated, you realize they haven't thought about it. And they're trying to come across smart while the, the smartest answer is like, interesting, didn't think about it. Thank you. <laughs> it's just honesty is, uh, is, is a great way of responding. Anyway, so th I think these were the two most important influential points in my life when it comes to the importance of simple storytelling. Yeah. And, and you already mentioned company culture and how it should be magnetic and how you use that story also internally to create and maintain the culture. Well, tell us a little bit about the, you know, how you scaled the businesses from an internal communications point of view. Were you very present as a CEO? Did you have systems in place, mechanisms, tools, or is it more about the personal touch? So what I learned very quickly is you can't over communicate. Um, and in the early days of my, commercial existence i thought you know i told the people what's going on so they should know it i sent them an email they should know it and the opposite is true um so what i'm doing what i did in the in my last innings of my ceo lives and what i continue to do as a chairman is i communicate on every possible channel with you know great flexibility in terms of messaging wording intimate setting distance i mix everything from lunches to dinners from drinks to you know sidebar discussions from email to surveys to video calls to video blasts and you know consistency is your friend right and uh so i think that is the biggest learning for me is like you can't over communicate stay consistent be simple simple terms yeah Amazing. And you, you're also, of course, an investor. So obviously you had a lot of investment in your own companies, but you're also an investor. And I think the first investment you took, uh, age 16, 3000 euros, and that helped you build your first business. And now obviously you are uh, an investor yourself, uh, you know, big ticket sizes. Uh, and, and I think what distinguishes you is that you stay on board longer and you have maybe more of an uh, intimate relationship sometimes as chairman, sometimes as, as an active investor. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your journey from receiving that first investment to being an investor in a lot of promising companies. Yes. So maybe let, let's start with you gaining investment. So how, how did that evolve and how did that uh, shape your view of what an investor should be like? So my, my first investment was not 3,000 euros, but 3,000 Deutschmark. Okay. Just, you know, so I'm, I'm old. I'm old. Oh, um, I can remember so, Deutschmark. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it was actually uh, my dad. We were broke already at that point. So he went to a friend of his. He was a craftsman himself. He was an electrician. And he basically borrowed the money. I think my luck back then was, you know, he didn't know what, what he was doing. He was just so devastated and so disappointed by life. Um, so that was my lucky shot because um, at that point in time, I'm 41 now. There was not a lot of business angels out there, not a lot of venture capital. And if there was, I certainly didn't have access to it. Um, so this is how I started. And the beauty of my, my first company, my first two companies, was that there was no external money involved. So uh, I grew it organically. 
I understood that when you have little money, this can be an advantage. One of the biggest advantages that you as a, as a entrepreneur have is the constant near-death experience financially. So that makes you lean and mean, and you think about spending twice. Um, and that was extremely helpful. You know, with Chulex was the first time where, where I raised some money. I'm not sure how much we raised, actually. I think it was less than 10, 10 million. I, I don't know how much it was. Um, I uh, approached a, a friend of mine, uh, Olaf Jacobi, is a partner um, at Capnemic. Today, he was an investor at Target Partners in Munich at the point of, of my request to him. And I learned the importance of uh, personal relationship, trust, um, and kind of, you know, had my my first baby steps into venture capital, kind of liked it, um, always invested my own money. So we there was always an alignment of interest. Um, and um, then when the venture bubble really blew up to a scale that I think was unhealthy, I was really shocked by um, the inefficiencies that some companies would show, right? You know, you, you saw that raising money became the real, you know, capacity that founders had. While I know that raising capital is important, you raise capital as a means to grow your business. But sometimes, you know, I had the impression you raise capital in order to raise more capital. And that was the right of existence for the company. So it wasn't a big surprise that the bubble burst. Um, and also one of the reasons why I stopped to actually do uh, co-investments in venture. There's, there's a few exceptions every now and then. Uh, but I really, really started to just invest my own money. And the, the beauty is, you know, I can, I can invest as much as a venture capital fund, right? Um, but I invested differently, right? I, I get involved actively. I try to, you know, make the people understand this, you know, building a company is super simple, right? But it's very, you have to have a lot of discipline, right? And you don't need, you know, free coffee. You don't need to have free lunches. You don't need a chief happiness officer or an office dog. You know, you need to treat your people fairly and respect, respectful. You have to treat your customers respectful. You have to make more money than you spend, right? And that's great. And then, you know, when you have companies, like one example is Learn, you know, that went public two weeks ago. We started, you know, Learn three, three years ago. Right. And yeah, I, I don't think I can say it publicly because now it's a public company and I have to be a little bit careful because I'm on the board of the company as well. But I can tell you this company is probably the most capital efficient company I've ever seen and zero external investment. Right. And, you know, it's just and it has a big role in the transformation, you know, towards the, the new uh, energy supply that we all need so badly. So long story short, um, I think. Uh, investments got a little nuts here and then. Yeah, yeah, we're back to more sensible valuations. I agree, and it's interesting that you pick um, companies that have uh, there's a positive societal impact. And another company, or a couple of other companies, I wanted to ask you about is uh, one is Startup Insider. Um, which is obviously uh, a media company. I've been guest on their podcast a number of times, and this is how we initially, our paths crossed. Um, I find it quite interesting that you also invest in such a media company. What's your what's your motivation there? Twofold. One is um, the founder, Jan. Um, he, you know, had um, a print magazine back in the days, um, Berlin Valley and um, The 100. And I was fortunate enough to be covered by him once or twice. 
Um, and um, I, as, as I told you before, I love mentoring. So he and I stayed in touch, and he's such a brilliant, you know, media person. And, you know, he's so hardworking, and um, he has such a high level of quality content he produces for over a decade now. Um, and then when he, you know, he approached me to invest in Startup Insider, um, I said no for the first five or six times, but I continued to mentor him. And as we embarked on our mentoring journey, one of the outcomes was a strategic target picture that, uh, you know, leads into the operating system for the startup ecosystem. I said, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> and uh, so um, we basically co-created that story together and said, you know what, I'm in. Right. So I invested, became the chairman, and you know had a blast since then. Uh, I think I'm in, in the company now for two years. I think something like this. I don't know. And we just did another round of financing with you know great people joining our mission. And I think that this company will be extremely impactful to the startup ecosystem and to society and to our you know economic system in Germany. Uh, as a whole, how so? Um, because most people would know them as a as a provider of information, podcasts, etc. Yeah. So what we will do is we will essentially connect the dots. Um, we will, you know, tell Joseph, you know, what kind of companies he should be investing in, what kind of you know people he should be mentoring based on his previous investments, based on you know the characteristics of you know his you know public statements. What really is a good fit for him? We will tell Oliver. You know where great guests are. We will take. Uh, we will tell. You know hidden champions that are. You know headquartered in the middle of nowhere. That there is a great small company uh, in the suburbs of Zurich that essentially solves a problem that is. You know tailor made for their new transformational journey. They're just embarking. We will. You know tell family offices what kind of investments they should be looking at. We will completely disrupt the entire venture capital scene where you have family offices investing in fund of funds, investing in funds, investing in target part, uh, you know, target companies. So we really want to make sure that the right people meet the right people. Wow. So really disintermediation and really connecting the dots, as you said, um, assuming knowing you, there's a lot of technology involved. So the media part is obviously important to raise the awareness, but behind the media part, you will have much more under, under the hood. Correct? Yes. So, um, Media and content is a means to acquire data and to get attraction. Then you have data, you have significance. Um, what Jan did, and I take my head off, what he did so well in the last two years is be, be basically become one of the most or maybe the most important, you know, nucleus of startup uh, ecosystem information, right, distribution, Right, um, you know, three to four podcasts a day, the newsletter. So he really did a fantastic job. So now people, you know, reach out to us. We have 10,000, you know, um, companies in our database already. And now we are launching our platform. You know, now we can basically say, hey, Joseph, there is something in here. Have a look. Right. But we needed the data first. We needed to be relevant. We needed to be to become the go to place for anything related to startups. Makes a lot of sense. And I think it speaks to the power of media and distribution, um, not always starting with a product, but often starting with the, with the shop window and gaining the traction and awareness before you ask. Makes a lot of sense. Um, 
In recent in recent years and months, you've also, you've also become more outspoken about uh, political topics, especially economic policies uh, here in Germany. So, is that something you could see yourself um, getting in deeper, talking more about? Not at all. Uh, not, I have so much respect for anyone going into politics, um, not only on the federal level, level or the state level, but also you know city councils and things like that. Um, We we live in a society that is that is not necessarily nice, right? So to speak. So uh, I have a lot of respect for people voluntarily, you know, having that exposure. When you start that political journey, the world is so divided. You only have supporters and you have haters. And though you know the world lost common sense. Right? We don't talk to one another anymore. We don't find middle ground. So for me, um, this is an absolute no-go to go into politics. That being said, I try to be very respectful when I, uh, when I provide my political views because I know that I don't want to be in the driver's seat and change them. So I'm hopefully I'm not pointing fingers. Hopefully I'm not using inappropriate wording. Um, hopefully, I'm not throwing anyone under the bus. I'm trying to provide rational for a uh, you know solution, a direction that I think makes sense. But never ever would I dare to tell somebody uh, in power um, something that would come across disrespectful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. That attract a lot of negative attention, um, and it's it's a tough job. It's a tough job for you know very long hours, a lot of uh, negative feedback justified or unjustified um, and we need them right so I also think it's important to be respectful and civil and disagree in a civil way if necessary or agree in a civil way and uh, that's that's something that we seem to have lost a little and I wish that would come come back now um, obviously all the doors are open for you so what are you planning to do going forward um, you've written one book You have invested a lot of companies. You built amazing, very successful companies. Where do you see yourself over the next five years to pick a number you've mentioned earlier? Yeah, I actually had this discussion quite a bit um, recently. Um, and I, a friend of mine asked me, why are you still doing it? When do you stop? What, what are you trying to achieve? And um, I'm, I'm a big Metallica fan, right? And there's this great... A podcast that um, James Hetfield, the lead singer of Metallica, um, did with um, Joe Rogan. He had this one brilliant line: "said There is always a better riff," and I, I, I found so much beauty in that line because it's about the journey. It's about improving yourself. It's about getting better. It's about you know touching the life of so many people. Is you know just trying to help and having fun. Um, so, and that is what I'm planning uh, on doing in the future. Continue to invest, but not, you know, with the focus to get richer. My life won't change anymore. Um, but, you know, doing something that makes sense. I have a um, pretty strong no asshole policy, right? So I can work with people uh, I would like to work and people I don't want to work with, I don't have to. It's beautiful. Um, and, you know, just trying to make the world a better place, but not being altruistic. Right, but doing it in a way that creates, you know, economic value as well. Mm -hmm. That's that's a very laudable aim. Uh, I admire that. And as a communicator, of course, have to ask: 
your journey as a communicator, just in the broader sense, spreading the message, spreading the word, is there also something you would imagine in the future? Maybe, as I said, writing another book or becoming a podcast host or, you know, whatever it may be. That there might be something coming around creativity. So I'm speaking to politicians now. Uh, didn't plan on announcing this and I'm not announcing it. I'm, I'm hinting at something. Uh, I, you know, um, I talk to politicians, to ministers, to um, Nobel Prize award winners, to, you know, um, sports people and to businessmen, to entrepreneurs, to CEOs of large companies, trying to understand how they view creativity and how they deploy creativity to create something meaningful. The reason why I do this is that I, roughly two years ago, one and a half years ago, I left my, it's two years ago, I left my entrepreneurial bubble because I, I kind of started to dislike the venture industry for the reasons that we discussed. But I love entrepreneurship. And for me, you know, these, they are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, so I then, you know, read a lot of books. I, re I listened to a lot of podcasts. Um, you know, provided by people outside my bubble, you know, craftsmen, great artists, authors, you know, scientific people. And every now and then, like with the line from Hetfield that I just quoted, you, you find a golden nugget, right? And, you know, these golden nuggets changed my life. So I thought, would it make sense to just continue doing this, digesting all of the information out there around creativity and putting this into a repository, however it will look like, right, that will provide people who consume the content um, to actually, you know, come up with creative ways of solving something, achieving something they haven't thought of before. So deconstructing creativity in two words. Wow. And, and, Do you see that in relation to AI and the role of humans in the future? Or am I completely on the wrong path here? Could be. Uh, I didn't think of it that way. Um, I think AI is the result of something creative, right? Yes. So um, it's, it's a tool that could assist you to actually test creative ideas even more efficiently. It's a great filter. It's a great, you know, filter that you can apply to understand what not to do, specifically when it comes to, you know, new ways of producing energy, right? So um, there's there's great, it's a great tool. Is it the source of creativity? Not necessarily. Yeah. Is it the result of creativity? I think so. Amazing. Here's a final question. What is your one final best piece of communications advice that you would love everyone to take away from this podcast? You can't over-communicate. You can't over-communicate. Uh, I signed up to that, Josef, for an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. I could go on for a few more hours uh, and it was it was brilliant. Thank you so much, Oliver, for having me. So could I, totally. Maybe we do round two soon. Maybe. Uh, when, whenever you're up for it. And um, there's so many things happening on your side, creativity, Startup Insider, all the other things you're building and investing in. So lots to talk about. Also for listeners, um, if you're interested in Joseph, his story, the companies built, there are a lot of podcasts, a lot of material about Joseph out there. So 
um, dive deeper today. I wanted to focus on learning more about your communication style, your learnings, which I hope we could provide. So thank you so much for that. All right. Um, thank you all for listening and see you all next week. Thank you. Bye.